Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on exploring and unearthing the details, professions, and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. There's a quote from an author that has always stuck with me when considering a life lived abroad. It comes courtesy of acclaimed writer, Bill Bryson, and it reads as follows. I can't think of anything that excites a greater sense of childlike wonder than to be in a country where you're ignorant of almost everything. Suddenly, you're five years old again, you can't read anything, you have only the most rudimentary sense of how things work. You can't even reliably cross a street without endangering your life. Your whole existence becomes a series of interesting guesses. For most people who travel often, there's a certain relatability within that sentiment. For others, including longtime residents of foreign lands, Bryson's astute observations most certainly ring true. However, it must be noted that eventually this initial naivety does give way to a certain degree of cultural understanding that begins to take shape. This refinement, in as far as comprehending the customs and ways of another society, can take years though. In even the most optimistic outcomes, such levels of discernment of another civilization can still be quite limited at times. On the show today, I have a guest who has spent time not only living and breathing in a culture far different to that of her own, but someone who is also devoted to years of studying and documenting it all. Through her own skill, tenacity, and thirst for knowledge, she is one of few outsiders who is truly qualified to speak to that of Japanese culture. Amy Chavez is an accomplished writer and former columnist for major news publications, including the Japan Times, 1997 to 2020, the Bali Times, and the Huffington Post. With an undergraduate degree in creative writing from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, as well as a double master's in technical writing and teaching English as a second language, ESL, Amy set forth and started a new life in Japan nearly 25 years ago. Her work has been published in such newspapers and magazines in Indonesia, Taiwan, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, and the US. And she's been widely interviewed by the likes of outlets such as the BBC and NPR Radio, amongst others. Now, Amy has spent the last 25 years living on a tiny island of 430 people in Japan's Seto Inland Sea. And for 23 of those years, she penned a column for a major Japanese publication covering issues central to island life, such as tourism, the environment, aging, and depopulation. And she is the author of several books, including Amy's Guide to Best Behavior in Japan. Her fourth and just released book is an oral history of the residents of Shiraishi Island, spanning the years from 1912 to 2022. And today we will chat with Amy about life as an author in Japan, and of course, her book, The Widow, The Priest, and The Octopus Hunter, Discovering a Lost Way of Life on a Secluded Japanese Island. With all of that stated, Amy, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to get into it all. And of course, I do have your book on hand. Excellent book. Really excited to explore it all with you today. So yeah, thank you again for uh, taking some time. 
The first segment that I do have is something called Coloring Wikipedia. And this is a segment where I basically just read off a definition of the guest profession. I like to do it for a couple of reasons. One, it brings everybody up to speed on what the you know, job is all about. But then two, oftentimes there's things that are sometimes underrepresented within the definition or just flat out left out. So it offers a, a nice kind of way of you know, getting the discussion started. So let me just read off what I have for you. Of course, that being author. And I will tell you, it is an ultra simplistic definition, but maybe within the context of everything and what you do, you could comment afterwards. Sound good? Yep. Great. All right, here we go. Author. An author is the creator or originator of any written work, such as a book or play, and is also considered a writer or poet. More broadly defined, an author is the person who originated or gave existence to anything and whose authorship determines responsibility for what was created. There it is. A bit of a mouthful. I mean, there's a lot of ideas kind of crammed into that. But again, very broad, though, too. So, yeah. What do you think, Amy? Well, I think that especially over the past 20 years, the uh, definition of an author has definitely changed dramatically. And while when I think of the word author, I think of someone who's written a book, yet on the other hand, the verb to author can be anyone who writes anything. So for example, the invitation to uh, come on to the Life as a Podcast was authored by Chris Schoenwald, the host. So in that case, really anyone can have authored something that they have written. When it comes to the noun author, it's a really good question about what an author is these days, because it used to be that an author was someone who had written a published book, and that would have had to have been through a publisher, and there would have been gatekeepers. And nowadays, anyone can write and publish a book, which I think is a good thing overall. However, when I hear that someone's published a book, the first thing I want to know is their qualifications. And I want to read, perhaps I'm biased because I am an author, but I want to read a book by someone who is qualified and experienced. And it's not that the average person doesn't have something really good to say and something valuable, but I don't think that, that writing books is seen as necessarily a profession in the same way that other professions are seen, and that it takes a lot of uh, experience, time, studying, honing the craft. And as an author uh, ages, their writing tends to become better with their own maturity and it shows through the writing. And I don't know how else to get that experience except to just go through it. And while there's there are people who can write their first book ever becomes a bestseller and is better than people who have dedicated their lives to writing, but those are your true geniuses. And I think that's true in any profession. There are going to be that rare person or persons who can do something better than the people who have studied it all their lives. But I don't think we should be so naive as to think we would be that person. <laughs> but these days you can get an MFA, which is a master's of like novel writing and such. And a lot of people are doing that, and it is being seen more as a profession. And that seems to have also upped the writing game and that people are really putting a lot of effort and time and years of study into it. it. makes for better books. It makes better quality all around. 
and it's a good thing to see. So I think self-publishing is a great thing for uh, people in general, for readers even, but I do think that people need to take it very seriously in order to be successful. Yeah, and I would add as well, I mean, just as a consumer, it's that level of discernment and understanding now that because of the self-publishing industry being out there, that when they do go on to say a digital platform such as Amazon or they're purchasing books there, you almost have to be aware, like you have to be doing your research a little bit, like you said, like, well, what qualifications does this person have? You know, what have they put out in the past? Are there any excerpts I can read just to get a, a handle on things? And I think that's sort of like the, the new way of maybe deciding between, you know, what you're going to purchase, what you're going to read. Maybe back in the day, you just go into a bookshop. and All the books that are there are certainly qualified. They have their gatekeepers, they have their editors, they have all those different things that bring them up to a certain level. Whereas now I think you have to be a little bit more, well, I use that word already, but discerning in, in essence, like trying to figure out what is going to be the best match for you. And maybe sometimes you do want that sort of fresh take and maybe the price point also matches. Like you see books out there for $1 and it's usually a good sort of indicator of, of uh, you know, where they're coming from at times. But um, yeah, there's certainly something to be said, I think for having editors there that are going through those books that are, you know, siphoning out things that probably shouldn't be in there that are going to add quality to the, uh, to the actual read itself. So yeah, it's an interesting way of kind of looking at it. Thanks for sharing that. Exactly. And I think also that, I mean, it doesn't mean that in the old days, there were only good books out there, right? No. Uh, publishers do take a big chance on authors. Typically you don't have to have a complete manuscript before a publisher will take you on mm. and take your book on and give you a contract. So they really are taking a risk. And while, of course, editing is a big process, a part of the process, it doesn't mean that a good editor can make good writing out of bad writing. It means that they can make good writing better. And Perhaps that's one of the big misconceptions of writing is that if you're a good writer, you don't need to be edited. But actually, that's completely false. Even the best writers are all edited. And editors are usually not writers themselves. And so they've developed a, their profession as being able to look at something and according to market needs, according to whatever their, maybe the niche as well that they're writing about all these things they take into consideration when they edit. And while they may edit on the sentence level like copywriting, they also do structural editing, which means you know leaving things out. And even in my latest book, I was asked to add chapters in certain oh, really? areas. Yeah. Cool. So it's a very complicated process. <laughs> yeah, absolutely fascinating though. Like right out of the gate here in this conversation, I feel like I was um, learning something new. You know, this is a world that I know very little about, just surface level sort of analysis. And it's, it's compelling to hear it. I mean, it's I might add that I also don't know much about it. I thought I did. I always, I mean, I read up on everything before I even became a writer. And so I thought I knew quite a bit going in. In reality, this... Uh, the book that you showed the people is my fourth book, my fourth publisher in every book and every publisher has been completely different. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Like you mentioned, each editor, for example, would have their own style. And then not only that, the, the time at which the, the books are being published is probably going to change things. Like you said, the, the market dynamics, what the needs are. 
And then also to even just the technology of it all, you know, and that's, as we all know, it's just rapidly evolving. So that's going to have an influence and that's going to shape things too, in certain ways. So Oh, it's an interesting point, one that I never would have considered, but really quickly, returning to the definition, was there anything that you felt was missing as well, like in terms of this? From the point of view as a writer? Yeah, sure. You can take it anyway. Yeah, as from the position of a writer, for example, many people call me a journalist because I worked for a newspaper for 23 years, but I'm not a journalist. And a journalist uh, has to do with news gathering and and fact checking and you know getting into certain issues. But what I was, was a columnist. So I would write largely from experience. I certainly did many of the things a journalist does as far as interviewing people and you know getting information. But as a writer, I was not involved in actual news gathering. So there's a big difference there and journalists are trained to do what they do. So that's probably another misconception people have is that if you've you know worked for a newspaper or if you've had something published in a newspaper that you're a journalist and actually that's that's not true okay all right well thank you thanks for sharing that well i do want to skip on over into a new segment here amy a q a discovery basically we you know continue this sort of back and forth but i think it's start here if that's all right i mean you have been part of several wonderful accomplishments we've listed some of those off um, off the top some of the books and you just said being a columnist for some major publications but maybe we could kind of rewind a little bit here and go into your past for example what led you into writing first of all and then what brought you to japan and then eventually what's taking you to shiraishi island okay well i think as a child i always knew that i wanted to be a writer and I always got praise in my classes for my stories and such. And I had a, a very creative um, mind, I suppose. And I was not necessarily a voracious reader at that time, which is probably very different from most authors. Most authors read a lot. And I had the opportunity to read. I always had lots of books. <laughs> but I guess it was like, you know, maybe very young tsundoku that, Japanese word for having lots of books that you haven't read yet. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar, and yeah. So I did read, don't get me wrong, but I read like, you know, five, 10 books a year where most authors grow up in the library and they find this fascination. So my, my fascination for reading came later in life, but my fascination for writing came early. And I thought I would like to write, but... I was repeatedly told, and it's true that it's very difficult to make a living as a writer. And I was a very practical sort of uh, college student. So I did pursue an undergraduate degree in creative writing, but uh, my master's degree, I did technical writing. And I thought, well, technical writing will pay the bills. And then I figured that around, you know, when you're young, you have these ideas, right? <laughs> I thought, well, when I'm around 30 years old, then maybe I'll be able to become a, a writer of books and such. <laughs> and so I did that. But in the meantime, I also found that I had this fascination for travel, which I blame on my grandmother, because <laughs> she did two world tours all by herself. And she actually missed my mother's high school graduation because <laughs> she was traipsing through Afghanistan and Iraq on a, on a donkey. And so I, of course, I heard all her stories and her house was full of all this furniture and things that she had bought from abroad and had sent back. 
So I found that I was really uh, intrigued with traveling abroad and my parents encouraged it. So as a result, I decided to get a double major for my master's in ESL, teaching English as a second language, because I figured that was something I could do anywhere in the world and make a living. So I did that. And then I had an opportunity to teach in Japan at university after that. So I came to Japan and I did that. And around that time, I read a book. This was a life-changing book. And it was called Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. And it walks the reader through all the mental, physical, and monetary costs of working, of having a job. And it asks you to go through your daily life and write things down, like in a modern version, would be like, okay, that $3 cup of Starbucks that you get every day on your way into work, or maybe your Netflix subscription, all these things. And then you have to write down how many hours of work effort you have to put in to buy that. And slowly, by the end of the book, you realize that if you don't spend very much money, you don't need to make as much. And if you don't need to make as much, you don't need to work as much. And and actually, maybe your job is pretty costly. (laughs) Maybe you should quit your job. So I thought of all that and moving to Japan's countryside in mind, I mm-hmm. thought, you know, if I can cut my costs, which you really can do in Japan's countryside, then I don't need to work so hard and I can work on my writing. So that's what I did. And the, my daily expenses are very low. I was able to buy a house with cash that I had already in the bank and day-to-day living expenses are very low. I could save money. And so that's what got me here. And of course, I also really just love to be in this environment. And I'm from Ohio in the US. So I was pretty landlocked most of my growing up life. And I just really wanted to have a sailboat. I wanted to kayak. I wanted to live surrounded by water because it's not something I had ever been exposed to. So this was just the best thing I ever did is moving to this small island. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I have so many more questions related to that, but I suppose we could address those in a few more questions coming up. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. This next question here, as noted again in your bio and reading out the top, you spent 25 years in Japan, 23 years on this tiny island we just referenced, Shiraishi in the Japanese inland sea. What has been this hook that has kept you in Japan this long? And not only that, on that particular island is a nice continuation of our last question. Well, as far as staying on the island, I it's the lifestyle thing for me. Yeah. And I love the big city, for example, and I love all the cultural things to do there. I love the countryside because I love being in nature. But what I didn't like was being in the middle of those two. So I lived the first four years in Japan, I lived in Okayama City. And that's a nice mid-sized city. It's a lovely place, but for me, I I really wanted one extreme or the other. So I figured moving to a place like Tokyo would be, it's too expensive and too competitive. And I didn't really see that as an option. And so I moved here to the island and I wanted to improve my Japanese. Of course, that's the best way to do it. 
because no one speaks English here. <laughs> Especially if they're on an island that small and yeah, that remote. Yeah. And I was also looking for the real Japan. I think a lot of foreigners are looking for the real Japan when they come. Now I should qualify this because this was 25 or more years ago. And at that time, the real Japan was traditional Japan. Whereas nowadays, the real Japan is anime and you know gaming and all those things, which of course you can also find here, especially in the cities. So I felt the sense of relief when I came here. I'm from the countryside in Ohio as well. My parents weren't farmers or anything. We, but we lived uh, among cows and horses, you know, growing up, and you know, we had goats and all those things that uh, make growing up really fun and exciting. And so I really, really enjoyed the atmosphere here, just the quietness. And I'd imagine too, I mean, also lived in Japan for quite some time, as some of my listeners would probably know by now, almost 20 years. But what I've noticed also is that on some of these islands, it's almost like a bit of a time warp. You could almost sort of like, there's probably some formula you could come up with. It's like a 10 year, 15 year, I don't know, sort of like gap or delay, essentially, like life just goes a little bit slower. And Acknowledging that, I'm going to speak to this later too, but like a lot of the residents on some of these remote islands are a bit older and a bit more traditional in their ways and their thinking and so on and so forth. And even just the architecture of their buildings reflected in that and the way they live their lives as compared, like you said, drawing reference to some of the cities, Okayama, Midsize City, or even Osaka or Tokyo, like those places are changing all the time, of course, and reflective of modern society around the world, essentially technology, all these things going on. But on these islands, things are moving a little bit more slowly. And there's a, there's something quite compelling about all of that, too, I would imagine. So, yeah. Yeah. And here, it's the, the norm is that people are unplugged. Yeah. And the option is to plug in. Right, right. And I see nothing wrong with that. No. And you can have both. But, and of course, the whole world now seems to be heading towards sustainability and eating local and being a part of a community, yet that's never changed here. It's always been that way. So I think coming from that place, like you said, that lag where I've always been ahead and coming back to this is, is so easy for me because it's an ideal that I think I've been chasing for a long time. It's an interesting point that you just brought up. Maybe now those islands are becoming the more progressive right? The ones that, like you said, are unplugging and that is the norm. That's the way it should be. That's what we're striving for. And this is how it's always been. And maybe, yeah, you're part of a very progressive culture and society now on that island. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. And people do, of course, use social media and such here, but it's done with a lot of uh, thought and discretion. You can still go somewhere just, you know, drink and get wild and crazy with your friends and know that no one's going to put it on social media. And I think that's wonderful. You, there's still this privacy and this respect for privacy. And it's just uh, delightful and kind of quaint in many ways. Yet I can turn around and do everything I want on social media here on the island. If we have an internet connection, we have all those things. And while one of the differences here is, and I talk about this in my book, is that it's, it's a very small village. And you can find very small villages in Japan on the mainland. But the difference is you can drive to them. Where 
on an island, it's so much more secluded and, and has been so much pres more preserved over the years because we don't have this influx of people coming in and out. Now, anyone can get on a ferry you know, bring their car even and come to the island, but people don't. And that's the difference is that with COVID, nothing changed on the island. We just, everyone went about their lives in the normal way. And we were very slow adapters of masks because we didn't need to worry about each other or someone bringing in COVID. Then of course, people did, you know, start wearing masks and such, but life went on as normal. And I thought about this and I thought, you know, maybe this is the definition of a good society is that you've created something that's almost untouchable and that no matter what other people are struggling with, you have this, this happy place mm. <laughs> where you don't have to worry about all that. Yeah. And it makes the island uh, very resilient in many ways as well. Because people are very, they know who they are, they know what they want, they don't feel that draw to the big city, or they don't feel, oh, life is passing me. They're quite happy coming to Japan. I think one thing that, especially, you know, maybe Americans are surprised about when they come, it's, it's a very polite society, and there's very little crime, there's things that are clean. And when I came, I was like, ah, this is the place I've been looking for my whole life, right? So these, all these things are preserved here. And one thing with people moving off the islands, because this has been a problem, uh, it's a worldwide problem and Japan is no exception, is the young people all leave and go to the cities where the jobs are. And one of the things that's happening is that the people who leave are losing contact with the villages where their you know, heritage homes are, and they're losing touch with the communities. And that means they're also losing touch with their traditions and losing touch with the manners and all the things that go along with the village life. So when people do come to the island, sometimes I'm I'm quite, uh, I chuckle inside that some of the manners that they don't know about <laughs> At one time, 20 years ago, even people in the city would know that. For example, someone gave me a gift of two items the other day. And in on the island, and you would never give someone two items. You either give one, three, five, <laughs> seven. It's an odd number because odd numbers are lucky numbers. And of course, you don't have to know this. It's fine. But when it gets down to weddings and funerals and such... You need to know this stuff. That's it's almost like a social lubricant. Smooth things over, smooths interactions over. If you know the rules to the game, then okay, I know how you're going to react. Then that makes it easier for me to react to what you're going to do and so on and so forth. Right. And so that's, and this is just young people and just something I've noticed recently where before that, you know, never happened. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how things change over time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this might be a nice kind of segue into the book. I'm going to bring it up again. Here we go. So with the release of your upcoming book, The Widow, The Priest, and The Octopus Hunter, Discovering a Lost Way of Life on a Secluded Japanese Island, maybe you could give listeners a bit of an overview on the book. What is it all about? When I was writing for the Japan Times, I often wrote about some of the issues on the islands and uh, the aging population, the depopulation itself as younger people move to the cities and other environmental concerns. And those were always the most popular columns. And so I wrote 
about the island for a long time before I wrote this book. But what happened is I started reading a lot of oral histories, not on just Japan, but you know, of the US and there are lots of uh, great books out there. There's Studs Terkel's books on people's jobs and what they do, which is actually quite like your life as a podcast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there are oral histories on the wars, you know, told from the point of view of the people who were, you know, who fought in the wars or were POWs and such. There are all kinds of oral histories out there. And as I read them, I thought, wow, this is really something special. This is something you don't get, such a wide variety of opinions and views on yeah. things. And also it celebrates the average person who does these things. You're not talking to only the elite or only the rich people or only the successful people. You're talking to the average person. And so I wanted to write a book that would be uh, interesting for anthropologists, ethnographers, the average person, and would also offer something historical. Because believe it or not, before I started writing this book, <laughs> The history of Shiraishi Island wasn't actually written down officially anywhere. And so I had to do a lot of digging. And I had to, like, just the fact that people have told me stories and I put it in the book is a, one of the first written histories of the island. Now, recently, since the book, I started doing this about three years ago. So it's taken that long for the book to be written and get published. But as I was writing it, the islands became a national heritage for the rock work here, the big rocks and the rock mining. And because they've used the rocks from here for uh, to build Osaka Castle long ago and such. So then suddenly everything was written down and they spent a lot of time in the city writing things down. And <laughs> so I used to have in the forward that this was the, the first written down history of the islands, but then it wasn't by the time I finished the book. <laughs> so I had to take it out. And I'll never forget going into Kasoka and seeing this video they had just put together about the islands and all the history. And I thought, oh, <laughs> it would have been nice if this yeah. had been out <laughs> yeah, before yeah. I started writing the book. Right. But so at any rate, I thought this is something that's really interesting. The islands are largely forgotten. The Inland Sea Islands, they're not seen as worthwhile to some of the prefectures have invested a lot of money in developing them in the tourist sense, bringing people out to see them and putting a few you know, places to stay and such on them. Mm -hmm. But uh, in our own city, as you know, they're not really interested in these islands. They're considered backwaters. Mm -hmm. And so there hasn't been much money invested in these islands. As a result, our culture is still pretty much intact also. So I wanted to to interview these people and find out what the island was like 100 years ago. And there are 430 people on the island. And of course, I've lived here a long time, so I know a lot of them. But still, you consider everyone here is basically a neighbor because it's a very small island, not just in population, but geographically, we all live in the same small you know, area. I think officially there are five neighborhoods now, but they're all right next to each other and run into the other. 350 houses, actual houses where people live that are occupied. So one of the ideas was I want to get to know my neighbors. You know, who are these people? And who is like that really old guy who, who passes my window every day in a four-wheel, you know, 
uh, cart, you know, one of those electric carts yeah. that the elderly use around here because you have to be able to get around. There aren't so many cars. And so I did, I went out and it turns out that this uh, old man, he's 94 and uh, he's a World War II veteran. And he had a fantastic story. And I talked to all these people who really gave very interesting stories about growing up and how things were different and the old Japanese customs that you know they were still using at that time. And some of them are actually still surviving today. It's on the cusp though. And interestingly, uh, Japanologist Alex Kerr, he uh, read an advanced copy and he said that he described Shiraishi Island as a, a village on the verge of collapse. And he's right. And of course, I've known this for a long time and I have written about the fact that these traditions are not going to be around in another 20 years. Well, now it's another 20 years. And especially, you know, with, I think COVID, while our daily lives didn't change, it did cancel festivals and such. And I think some of those will not be revived. So uh, it is something that's uh, really a, a slice of history. And another reason for writing the book was that I wanted more things to be available in English. There are many scholars and researchers out there who are interested in this kind of stuff, this information, but it's inaccessible because it's in Japanese. So I feel like by having this book, the people have an English resource for these things, a starting point. And one of my ideas is then to continue and write more books about other islands in our chain so that we do have readily available information for those researchers and scholars who want to know more. That's a really interesting way of, of putting it all and kind of encapsulating those, those ideas. Essentially, being a resident of Japan now, too, I'm kind of struck by some of these feelings as well. You enter some of these communities, and especially, like you said, the islands themselves, just because they are cut off from the mainland. And if they don't have that funding from their local governments, which, as you pointed out, a lot of those islands, that chain of islands off the coast of Kasaoka, meaning the city, the mainland city, it's tough. It is tough for them. And I feel when you do visit these islands, you are visiting places that you recognize the fact that they aren't going to remain in the same way that you're seeing them right now in this moment. Like every day, it's either changing. And, you know, especially with this, these aging populations on these islands, you know, I, I've noticed even over the last four or five years of visiting some of these places where there might have been this one business that was operating you know, or a, a house there that was occupied. But in returning now, a few years later, it's shuttered, you know, and you see these changes, you see them right before your eyes. And it's not hard to, to consider like, well, if you fast forward this, this trend, five, 10, 20 years, then yeah, what are we looking at here? And uh, it's certainly a somber sort of feeling that you get, you're considering all of this, but then also in the same sense, like what I try to remind myself of personally is that, well, have to enjoy this moment as well and take it all in and interact with it and, and live it and breathe it as much as humanly possible, you know, and that's, that's one way of combating some of those feelings, but yeah, it, it's hard to ignore. I mean, some of those, those facts and uh, yeah, but I would like to, uh, to transition into another question here, Amy, but I think that did give a nice overview of the book and uh, yeah, let's explore it more. This next question here, I was, well, it's more of an observation, to be honest, 
In personally reading the book, I was instantly struck by just the eloquence, prose in describing the scenery, the history, and lives of the residents. I think it'd be interesting to read off one short paragraph to kind of illustrate this point. So just give me a second here. I'm going to bring up the book. And well, there's several passages, but this one right very early on just stuck with me. And uh, I think it's just absolutely beautiful. So let me just read this off. While evenings are marked by the ripplets of the tide, the mornings are still, as if time's relentless pull forward has been stayed. The tide, now high, between my house and the opposite side of the port, is only water, placid as morning dew. The shadow pond mirrors everything above it, the amber sky, a passing gossamer cloud, a seagull circling figure eights. In these early hours, life is reflected, duplicated, and copied a thousand times a minute in burst mode, recording a life of softer lines and breathtaking quietude. It is a temporary lull in my favorite time of day. I absolutely love that. I mean, it just, for me personally, when I read that, it, it took me to that moment, perhaps, or at least I could imagine what that must have been like, or that feeling. The description of, of not only like the scenery, it kind of represents the lives, I suppose, of what residents would also see on a daily basis. And yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we could go there a little bit. Yeah, sure. I think that one of the tragedies of modern life is that we've lost touch with nature. Mm. And we're at the point where we can't even tell when a tsunami is coming by looking at the tides and the waters and noticing that something's different. And it, People these days, because everyone's moving to cities and such, especially, they're out of touch with nature around us and the realities of what actually sustains us on a daily basis. So while we have kids growing up inside, right, in apartments and such, they're not outside and playing in nature. And especially in Japan, you go to the local park and it's actually concreted over as well. <laughs> so. There's very little there to be able to remind people that we need to take care of this planet and that it gives us everything that we need to live. And right now, what we're doing is we're just overloading uh, the resources. We're just raping the land of its minerals, its resources. We're not putting back into it. We're not replacing things anymore where we used to have to do that to balance nature. There used to be crop rotation and such. And now we use genetically modified crops to take care of certain problems that we don't want to have to deal with. And we make, you know, those crops more resistant to pests and such rather than, you know, finding a workaround the way we always did before. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the fishing industry. And uh, fishing, of course, this is the inland sea, and it's Japan where the diet is mainly fish as opposed to you know, beef and chicken and such. Of course, even that's changing now. But the sea is one of those things where it's suffered even more than the land because people cannot see inside the water to know what's actually happening. So while people hear, oh, the seas are being overfished and this and that, it's easy to just say, oh, yeah, right. If you uh, see the damage, you know, you can see pollution, you can see uh, mining, strip mining and such, and you, that has more of an impact. So most people have just kind of ignored the seas. And I did interview a fisherman in uh, my book. 
And interestingly, since that time that I interviewed him, the fishermen have all stopped going out to sea because there are no more fish. Really? And I had heard that at the time I was interviewing him, but I wasn't really sure that it was true. It was just one thing I heard, right? And uh, one person who had stopped, but actually now all of them have stopped going out. So yeah, the environment is also on the verge of collapse. And I feel that if people could get back to nature and realize and have to live in it and work in it, and if children you know, had more access to living in the countryside, they would appreciate those things more and it would be much more relevant. Yeah, that's just noticing it, I suppose, right? It's, it's those, those quiet moments and we've already spoken to this point to a degree, but I mean, the day and age we're living in, it's phones, it's iPads, it's digital devices, and it's this, it's your head down, you know, more times than not. And it's not taking the time to just kind of look up, you know, see what's going on around you and taking it all in and considering it. And you're right. I think there's a certain element to all of that, which is lost or has been lost. And uh, there, there are consequences that you just sort of outlined. Yeah. And I remember my brothers had their children and we all went to grandma's house and uh, grandma and grandpa live out in the countryside where I grew up, where my brothers grew up. And I was so disappointed that the kids, and they were 10, 12 years old, they sat inside on the sofa with their mobile phones. And I thought, this is a shame. Here is all this woods out there, this forest they could be exploring and seeing, and it was completely lost on them. So a lot of it is even if you put kids in nature, then how do you get them out into it, right? How do you get them off those mobile phones and such? And I remember when I was growing up, TV was the big thing, right? right. Oh my gosh, we've got to get these kids, you know, to stop them from watching TV all the time. And my one of my brothers was always glued to the TV, as my mother always said, <laughs> your eyes are going to go bad. You're just glued to that TV, where I was never interested in the TV because I had other things. I wanted to ride horses and I wanted to do other things. So I think some of it, there's not really a lot you can do for some, some situations, but on the other hand, there is a whole lot you can do. And I know that you yourself, you, you know, take your kids kayaking and you do all these things. And that is more and more important these days to make sure that kids are exposed to the outdoors. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And uh, I guess, again, returning to a sentiment, you know, relating to the book and relating to the island, those are things that are just givens, essentially, if you've been brought up on the island and part of that culture, which is nice, I mean, it's a nice, nice element to it all. I have another question here relating to, to the book and to the island itself. There's a lot of depth and detail in the descriptions of ancient Japanese ways of life and living. Of course, it's covering the period 1912 up until almost to the present, essentially. But you dive in even beyond that to give context to some of the, the thoughts and feelings of some of the people that you're interviewing. And I found it was interesting. I mean, it's incredibly compelling. Got a lot of unspoken, even forgotten Japanese cultural elements to it. And there's one particular recurring question that kept coming up that you were exploring through your conversations with islanders. And it was relating to this very old ritual that probably a lot of young Japanese wouldn't even be familiar with. And it's called Hito Bashira. Um, first of all, <laughs> Could you explain the meaning of this and also just the significance of it within the book? Yeah, sure. So hitobashira means human pillar. And I refer to it in the book as uh, the woman in the pillar. And 
this was a type of human sacrifice that was employed to please the gods. And so this is back probably up until uh, 1600s, late 17th century. And I mean, well, first of all, we have to realize that the whole world has done this at one point, you know, in ancient times, human sacrifice itself is uh, nothing really that different, but yes, still it's something that's uh, hard to <laughs> Right, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, but in Japan in those days when they had big public works projects such as building bridges and ports, especially those two things, they felt a human sacrifice was necessary to please the gods to make the structure safe. So this is uh, the Edo period, the samurai period in Japan. And that's when Shiraishi was first developed. And the, it was developed because the local feudal lord in Fukuyama Castle was looking for a place to graze his military horses. And he came out to Shiraishi Island and he saw the possibilities there that he could have his horses here. So they needed to build a port to make the island accessible. So they started with these big granite rocks and making blocks you know, of rocks to build walls. And so that took, there were two phases of it and they each took about 20 years, each of them. And well, 10 to 20 years. And so no one's really sure if they did the human sacrifice here or not, but probably. <laughs> and I think because it's one thing that the Japanese find very embarrassing about their culture, because they, they don't realize that other cultures also did this maybe, they tend to want to cover it up and they tend to just gloss over it as if it didn't happen. But yeah, so there have been studies done here and they've decided where it probably would have taken place. And as a result, though, there's a lot of folklore about it on the island. And in some of these interviews, you'd hear people say, well, I know this is true because my grandmother told me. So it's there really is a, a big culture of ghosts also and stories like that that people believe and that have you know endured through the ages. And as I started learning more about the ghosts, I started finding out why people were seeing these ghosts. There's actually scientific evidence of some of this stuff that leads to these stories. And it was highly interesting. Mm, okay. No, thank you for sharing that. Really interesting read in that chapter. And as you mentioned, some of the, the paranormal activity that's been reported as well. Also really fun to, to go through all of that. I do want to transition into another segment here, Amy, and something called a water cooler story. And as the name sort of implies, we're looking at a story essentially related to maybe our talk today in the, in the context of your book. I'm sure there's probably tons of things that just didn't make it into the book. So I'd be curious to hear what you've got for us today. Okay, well, uh, I think I'll tell this story then about the book cover, because that's not something people usually hear about, book covers and how they're produced. Okay, so on this book cover, as you can see, there's a, a lady um, in kimono in the old style of hair. And in the background is the sea, and there are some boats in the background. And the title, of course, is The Widow, the Priest, and the Octopus Hunter and which highlights three of the 31 people I interviewed. 
And the original cover was not this with the lady as if she's waiting for someone to come back and with the sea in the background. The original cover was actually a picture, a cartoon picture of an octopus and because of the octopus hunter. On the tentacles of the octopus at the end were cherry blossoms, right? Because the cherry blossoms are symbolic of Japan. And then you have these rather large pair of chopsticks coming into <laughs> the photo, grabbing a hold of the little octopus because the Japanese eat octopus. And of course, the chopsticks are there to show you that it's Asia. Well, <laughs> the publisher, they, everything's quite uh, complicated with publishing. There are all kinds of different people do working on the book at the same time, doing different things. You have your editors and then you have your cover designers and then you have your marketers. And so at one point, the publisher went to a this um, conference, I guess, where they show their book covers and ask for feedback. And when they went and did this in the US, people were like, ah, that's terrible that you're eating that octopus. <laughs> now, of course, we're sitting here going, well, wait a minute. You know, what's wrong with eating octopus, right? People eat, you know, factory farmed beef and all these other things, right? Well, it turns out that at that time, the documentary, My Octopus Teacher. I was just, that popped in my head. Octopus. Yes, yes. And so people were queasy about eating octopus. <laughs> so, you know, fair enough. I think it's a, a boon for the octopus population. Good for them, you know. So, so they changed it. And I think it was, it was a last minute change. Mm. And as a result, uh, you'll see inside the book, the little cherry blossoms are still inside the book. They left over from that original cover to use as uh, to divide between chapters and and you know different parts. So that's still a theme, but the cover is different. And I think in this case, it was a really good move because while I, I liked the octopus cover as far as the art went, I think this cover is much more representative of the content in the old Japan. And the lady in that profile picture is what I would imagine the, the widow in this book. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think it worked out well in this case, but yeah, that was a last minute change. <laughs> I really like it. I mean, it's one thing to me, aside from the actual content that struck me right away, is it just sort of, like you said, it sort of represents a, a lot. And, and mm -hmm. being on Shiraishi's, visiting that island several times and then mm -hmm. reading up on it too, I think it brings it all together in such a, a nice artistic way. So, yeah. And yeah. then you asked about like what maybe didn't make it into the book and there were lots of things, but one of the things that I learned from writing this book, I mean, lots of things, I certainly didn't know everything that's in here at the time, but there is something in Japan called a murahachibu. Uh, mura means village and murahachibu is non-acceptance into the community or the other extreme of the definition would be ostracization. And I wanted to just comment that, you know, when I first heard about Murahachibu, I thought, you know, this is really not nice, right? To uh, not accept people into the community. And I still, you know, agree that it's not a nice thing. However, after living here for so long, I now understand it. And here you have this community that everyone has invested so much time into and then you get an outsider coming in. And of course, outsiders can be great. They can renew life on the island. They can do this and that. 
but there's a also a certain number of those outsiders who are going to actually do damage to the community. And the problem is when people bring their outside ways to the island, many of them, not all of them, some of them, I should say, not even many, but they have no regard for the people who are already here and they don't respect their traditions. And then you have a problem. It doesn't mean that people living here have also done some bad things, right? But the difference is that there's someone here to take responsibility for it. There's someone here to apologize. There's someone here to right the wrongs. And so the outsiders coming in don't necessarily see that as you know, something that they need to adjust about their behavior. So, and I think that's true actually in a lot of the world is whenever you get tourists coming in, you get a lot of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting way of sort of you know, considering that, that issue in particular. Thank you for sharing that. Well, we are rounding the bend and it's something called the crystal ball segment and we are looking mm-hmm. towards the future. And towards the end of the book, you draw a reference to something of a bit of a somber note, that being the graduation of last two junior high school students. And that also representing the, the closing of that junior high school as well. And the, the final educational institution that had been operating. Now, what did that mean to the residents of Shiraishi? And then also as an observer, as a resident of the island, you know, what does that mean to you? Well, yeah, certainly with the closing of the last school on the island, we, we don't have any hope of really keeping the island going because no one's going to move here with a family if there's not a school. And now there is a school boat. And they will take children into the mainland for school. But a lot of Japanese parents especially don't want to do that. They think it's quite uh, risky to have their young children on boats, especially, you know, we get a lot of typhoons and storms here. So the the boats do stop. And then what do you do? <laughs> Your kid's on the mainland. They're stranded in there, yeah. <laughs> it, neither can you reach the other and such. So it is a problem, but I think most people at this point realize that this is going to happen and uh, they realize that there's not much that they can do about it. Uh, So while it would be nice to have children and a school, it's just not viable anymore. And with Japan's continuing depopulation, yeah, there's really, I don't think people think that it will, you know, change. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting tough. Is there anything that gives you hope? you know, for the future of the island moving forward? I mean, that's that's a challenge unto itself, as you just outlined. Is there anything? I think there's hope through tourism. Uh, one of the, another island on in our chain has gotten a lot of French tourism. And I do think there's a lot of possibilities with foreign tourism here. It's a place where you can still, where you can actually take part in the festivals and such. I mean, how often can you do that, right? I mean, there are big festivals in Osaka and the big cities, but you're a you're you're not a participant. You're an observer of it, which is great too. But here, you could come and actually be a part of the festivals. So there are a lot of things that uh, they can do, and uh, with people, you know, as our older people do drop off and are no longer around or are no longer healthy enough to do things, we are starting to get some outsiders in. Uh, who are interested in business opportunities. And there's been a lot of resistance to that up until now. But inevitably, that's what needs to happen. So uh, I think there is some hope there. Okay. Mm, Excellent. 
Well, Amy, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. I mean, I could go for another hour quite easily. There's so much to explore, but I am conscious of your time. So I think we do need to, to draw this to a close, but yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been really fun. For those interested in getting a copy of Amy's book, there will be a link in the show notes where you can go check it out and you can purchase it right away. And also too, you can follow Amy. She's on Twitter, LinkedIn, and she also has a podcast, Books on Asia podcast. So you can check her out there as well. And if you like today's episode, please be sure to share. I mean, it goes a long ways. I think if we get to know each other, what we're doing, the stresses, the pressures, the joys, it reduces that divide. And hey, I mean, that's never a bad thing. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And then also to head on over to YouTube. I recently launched a channel over there, Life As A, where you can check out full video conversations in addition to just a straight podcast. I'll have a slideshow for the first three, four minutes of imagery related to the actual show. So head on over there. And if you do, you'll notice right away, the show does need a bit of love. Give it a, you know, a subscribe if you have some time and really, really appreciate that. And then finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Thank you.